Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. I feel like I'm repeating myself all the time, maybe going a little bit insane, continuing to say this at the beginning of Tuesday nights, but I think it's important to keep it in front of us that the point of this ministry is not to become an entertaining Christian club that does Christian things that never impacts our world. And I think, particularly tonight, like tonight, where hopefully the Lord is already impressing on your souls the great need in our world, great need on our campus, in our city, that you would come into these gatherings with that type of seriousness. Um, We want to see every single one of you in Christ and on mission. And to be frank, some of you in the room really need to slow down and consider these things. If you're a Christian, claim to follow Jesus, you should belong to a gospel-believing local church family. Listen, when we say things like that, that is not us just saying, please join our church so we can say we have college students there. It is clear throughout the New Testament that the way that we can faithfully be on mission, bring glory to God, see His glory among the nations, is as Christians gather together in local churches under the preaching of the Word, sent out, held accountable, pushed toward mission in where we live. That is how God is bringing His kingdom to the world. So we don't have interest here in building a campus ministry. We see this as a tool in the hands of God to build His kingdom. Some of you need to have that conversation tonight. If you claim to follow Jesus, but Sunday morning belonging to a body is nowhere on your radar, you need to slow down and consider that tonight. At the end of the day, people who claim to follow Jesus should be a little bit strange to this world. And not necessarily because of our actual strangeness, although I'm sure we participate in that. We should be strange because we truly don't fit into any box that the world might try to put us in. Yet at the same time, our strangeness is marked by a supernatural love of people who fundamentally oppose our God. Seems harsh, but that's a true statement. And I'll be honest. This passage, Mark 11, studying this passage has been like a spiritual smart bomb right in my soul. There is is never a Tuesday night or a Sunday morning or any time when I'm up front that I feel adequate to preach the message. Never. But I'll be honest, tonight I'm broken. The glories of Jesus that we will see in Mark 11, particularly in what he is angry about, have been very difficult for me to wrestle with because of how little I truly do match what he is about. 
So I pray you've come hungry for the Word, because Jesus is not messing around in Mark chapter 11. So we need to get started right now. Hopefully, you're already there in your Bibles. We should have the words on the screen as well. Let's start in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to stop there. I want to go ahead and introduce the title of this sermon because I want you to see that this is a point in the book of Mark where all eyes turn toward the cross. Title of this sermon, if you're a note taker, you want to write this down. The title is The Week When All Heaven Broke Loose. This is an important moment in the life of Jesus and in the book of Mark. It is at this point when they are drawing near to Jerusalem that we start something that Christians call Holy Week. And if you don't know what that is, it's just the week leading up to the biggest event in the history of the entire world, namely the death of Jesus and his glorious resurrection. And in one turn of phrase, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, Mark is grabbing our eyes and placing them squarely on what is quickly approaching. If you remember last week, Zach reminded us that Jesus continues to predict his death and his resurrection, and now the time is here, all eyes on Jerusalem. Jesus is starting his final week. And this matters for you. Even if you would never call yourself a Christian, this matters. If Jesus really died and he really is reigning right now alive, you have a choice to make. And even if you are a Christian, this is something you need reminded of over and over again, that the reality is we have a reigning king who has demands on our lives. And if we are honest, too often we are not living up to those demands. So for the rest of the semester, we'll be walking through the rest of the book of Mark and try to watch every single move that Jesus makes as he begins his assault on sin, death, and evil in the world, but also on the sin, death, and evil in us. If you'll receive this gospel by faith, you too can come alive and not be trapped in your sin. And I can't wait to get there, but before we do, we have things to watch. There are angles to the gospel that you're going to see starting tonight all throughout Holy Week that should shock you, maybe even offend you, But I'm hoping that what you see is that maybe as we see Jesus in a different light, especially if you are new to the Bible or new to church, these are going to be things that honestly may kind of break up your categories of what you think Jesus is like. There's a chance that all of us have a Jesus that might be too safe. So let's look at verses 1 through 11, see what's going on. So now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told him what Jesus had said. Miraculously, they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So what is going on here at first? Uh, I do want you to see at least one thing before we get to 
Um, kind of a cross-reference that I think can help put some, uh, some kind of meat behind this. But just marvel at the fact that Jesus is in absolute perfect control of this. This is kind of crazy. You think about their entering into Jerusalem and he has, you know, they, he's given a lot of difficult commands, but this one is just, hey, listen, go into this village and immediately you're going to see a colt tied. No one's ever sat on that colt. And I need it. And they might think that's strange. Just let them know that the Lord needs it. And they'll give it to you. <laughs> and it works. Jesus is in absolute control here. And I love this obedience to something that does seem rather silly. But we could spend the rest of our lives just being in awe of the fact that Jesus is actually in perfect control of every single detail of every single one of our lives. But there's also in this moment of a cult in which no one has ever sat going into Jerusalem of fulfilled prophecy. I want you to see Zechariah 9.9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. So people who knew their Old Testament would see this was a salvation claim. Jesus saying, I need a donkey. Because what I'm about to do is something that has been prophesied for ages. The end of this age is coming. Jesus is here. Jesus Christ is the King of the world. And salvation is actually here. But don't you love that this king didn't come on a chariot? He came on a donkey. There was something different about our king. He didn't come in power at first. He comes in humility. He was coming to give up his life. Look how they respond. Verse 8, back in Mark 11. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. It looks like right now these people got it right. This was the response all of us should have to the coming king of our salvation. But it might look like they maybe weren't getting what they expected. You see, there's a chance. Common in that day would have been people longing for salvation to be free politically from Rome. They weren't necessarily expecting humble death, resurrection, no matter how many times Jesus told His disciples. This was a different kingdom that was coming. One that would not just establish a kingdom in Jerusalem and not just a kingdom that would overthrow Rome, but a kingdom that would go to all the nations and one that would overthrow evil and sin itself. The king really was here, and Hosanna was the appropriate response. That word, if you are new to the Bible, is just an expression of adoration and praise. They're saying, we praise this one who has come. His kingdom is here. The kingdom of our father David, the one promised to us, it is here. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Luke's Gospel picks up um, some more dialogue that happens um, around this event. So you don't have to turn there in your own Bibles, but it'll be on the screen. This is Luke's account of this exact scene, starting in verse, uh, Luke 19, verse 39. It says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, this is after what had just happened, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus is going to get his glory. 
Do you see the power here? Listen, people should praise Jesus, but if they won't open their mouths, these rocks are going to sing. God's going to see to it that He gets His glory. The question is, how are you going to respond to this King? Well, rocks need to sing. Do you worship Him with your life? What is your response to the humble King of glory who is bringing the Gospel to the whole world? Look at verse 41. It should be on the screen. And when He drew near and saw the city, that is Jerusalem, He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Look what is happening. Jesus knows that the people who reject Him will experience the wrath of God. Do you realize this? For those of you who aren't in Christ, or for those of you that know people who are not in Christ, rejecting this King is choosing to accept the wrath of God. There is not neutral ground in the kingdom. Calling yourself a Christian or being culturally moral is not life in the kingdom. Jesus is saying, if only these people would have known the things that have come for peace, but because of their rejection of Me, these things are hidden from their eyes. He's weeping. Do you see the compassion in His wrath? Jesus knows these things that are true about a just God, meaning a just God will punish sin. He is not good if He doesn't punish people who reject Jesus. And it's in that compassion that He is weeping for those who reject Him. Now, please don't see this as Him just weakly begging to be accepted. I think sometimes we have that picture. Jesus just, please accept me. This type of weeping comes from a heart that loves people deeply and a mind that understands the reality of rejecting the Gospel. So for those of you that follow Jesus, and this is where this sermon feels impossible to preach. But I'll ask the question and we can wrestle together. For those of us in the room that follow Jesus, do you ever feel this way when you consider the 14,000 some people on our campus? Do you consider family members, friends that you've had, Maybe even they know you're a Christian. Do you understand the reality of the wrath of God on them? And do you understand the compassion in Jesus' tears? Have you wept for people? We can take it beyond the campus. What about the plight of the nations? The question for us as a ministry, as individuals who claim to follow Jesus and claim to be a part of this kingdom following this weeping king, the question for us is will we let these tears stay on this text or will we join the heart of Jesus as He looks at the people in our lives? And will we weep?
this truly matters. I don't know the last time that I've wept over the lost in my life. Verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus goes into the temple, and if you've read ahead in Mark 11, you know that this verse adds some serious tension in the story. Jesus goes into the temple, looks around at everything, realizes it's late, and then he goes back with his 12. But you notice that Jesus is already emotionally engaged and passionate about the spiritual state of broken people. And we're going to see another side to this heart shortly. But you need to understand that when all heaven breaks loose, it can take a lot of different forms. It does look like weeping compassion for the lost, but it also looks like hard things for people who claim Christ and their lives do not line up with that. Let's go to verse 12. So they end their day, and then we see what happens the next day of Holy Week. This would be Monday. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. (laughs) Stranger than the donkey story. This is actually what happened. This is a fascinating thing, and there's a lesson to be learned for us, but... Your eyes are not deceiving you. Jesus got hungry and expected that fig tree to feed him. And when the tree didn't, he cursed it. (laughs) Literally, no one's going to eat figs from you anymore. And the disciples heard it. And this is going to be the part of the sermon where I think you might be tempted to put walls up. But I'm begging you, lean in now. Refuse to let this be another week of just campus ministry checklist on your schedule Jesus is not comfortable. He is not safe. We need to wake up and see the glory of our king. Look at verse 15. So he curses the tree, and then verse 15, they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. This is a terrifying picture. This is the the place where people were supposed to be coming to worship God, to worship Jesus as Father, to be the place of spiritual influence in a city. And Jesus rolls in after his encounter with the fig tree, turns over tables. You can imagine this scene. This is probably loud and shocking. And I love that. He turns over the tables, tables of the money changers and their seats, And then won't let anyone come through. He's saying, he's drawing a line in the sand. Obviously, Jesus did not like what he saw in this temple. And you need to understand, when the kingdom is coming, hypocrisy stands no chance. You see, just like the fig tree who showed leaves with no fruit, that is a cursed way to live because God changes us from the inner man to the outer, and Jesus curses hypocrisy. And this is my story. I mentioned this some in my testimony last week. But this was me. 
claiming Christ in a veil of Christianity that did not lead to internal change. You need to understand that is just as lost as someone who is honest about their relationship with Jesus. It's honest about their rejecting of the Gospel. Jesus is saying, giving us a picture of the fig tree in this temple. They are showing like they love God, but they are not bearing fruit. This is a cursed way to live. And it wasn't until Jesus literally wrecked my own heart, turned over tables in my heart, through the prayers of people and loving people who cared enough about me to expose my hypocrisy, so I finally got it. I guess one of my prayers tonight is that none of you leave here, if you are a hypocrite, if you are someone who leafs your relationship with Jesus but there is no figs, I pray that Jesus will not let you move until you deal with him tonight. Jesus curses our hypocrisy because he loves us too much to let us go on like that. You were made to glorify God by bearing spiritual fruit Good works, mission, kingdom-oriented living with holy motives. And we can't do that apart from His grace. Jesus was drawing a line in the sand. Think about the, the weightiness of this moment. Tables are flipped, chairs are upside down, and He will not let anyone come through. And I'll be honest, I have been praying that the Lord would draw a line in the sand even in our lives. And He certainly has exposed me as a follower of His this week. And as we see the charge that Jesus brings against this temple, I don't want you to deflect this onto other people who you think might be hypocrites. You see, I think the enemy does that a lot when we're listening to the Word. It's easy to hear things like this, and it's just it's ammo against others when, when the Spirit is, is targeting you. God wants you to wake up to the lack of fruit in your own life. He wants you to wake up to your own hypocrisy. I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to flip tables in your own heart. On a personal level, as a ministry, things must change. Look when he opens his mouth to teach in verse 17. So you can imagine that setup. Like that's his sermon introduction, is flipping tables. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. We need to hear this teaching. We need to receive it and repent of where we fall short. And before we look at the first part, I want to examine the den of robbers comment. Some context you need to know. The money changing tables, the buying and selling and pigeon booths were equal to robbing people in Jesus' eyes. You see that? He's angry. He flips them over. He says, you've made this a den of robbers. So what was happening in that exchange of goods in the temple was robbery to Jesus. So you need to know that the poorer people in the community would have needed to sacrifice pigeons because they couldn't afford the proper sacrifice. Literally, in the Old Covenant, there were um, laws that gave room for those who couldn't afford them. It's a gracious thing. God showing anyone not just the religious elite, not just the rich, can come and worship me. But what Jesus saw in the temple was a disgusting injustice. 
You realize this was supposed to be a place where all people could come and worship the one true God, but you have religious people literally making money off of other people's poverty. He is not happy. His temple, his father's house was supposed to be a place where everyone was welcome by God's grace. But these people had the audacity to use their business acumen to rob from people who God wanted to worship him. Foreigners, Gentiles, not just Israelites, were welcome to make the pilgrimage to that temple to worship our God, and they were being manipulated and taken advantage of by the people who claimed his name. They were overselling their product and using the worship of God to fill their own pockets, using God's glory as a means to glorify themselves, and Jesus was not having it. Let's talk about the first part. Because I'll be honest... What I'm afraid could happen as we consider the anger of Jesus in the temple is that we can all decide, hey, it's a good thing that we aren't bad businessmen. (laughs) And we can miss not just what Jesus was angry about, what they were doing, but in his teaching he was showing a hypocrisy of something that they weren't doing that they should have been. He is angry because instead of his father's house, the temple, being used for its intended purpose, it's being used to take advantage of people and keep the non-religious far away. Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7, gives us a picture of what the Lord's temple should be. And I believe it gives passion and fire to what Jesus was bringing to the table in this encounter. Hopefully it's on the screen, yeah. And the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants... Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful, here it is, in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. This is what God expects His people to be, and what Jesus saw was hypocritical blasphemy. And don't, I want you to see this plainly. New covenant, this side of the resurrection, God's people, His people, we are the temple. The church is the temple. And Jesus' rebuke makes what we should be doing as His temple perfectly clear. We should be people of prayer, and we should be people of mission who are bringing people in. We should be a people who pray Please don't boil prayer down to repeating some spiritual checklist or a to-do list for our Heavenly Father. Prayer is what happens when we get a vision for God's global glory plan that includes everyone who will have faith in Christ. And it does not stop on our campus. It thunders forth to the nations. Do you understand what our prayerlessness shows about us? We must not understand God's Father heart for us. Or maybe we don't understand His power. We must not understand our neediness or how desperate we should be for His help. We must not understand how short our life really is or how much time we actually waste. Prayer is not a self-help tip to make you feel good. Prayer is worship to our Father. 
One of the most precious gifts we get in the salvation of Jesus. We get our Father's ear no matter what because of Christ. And if we're honest, sometimes we let anything rob us or distract us from this gift. And we should be people who are on mission. What is it that keeps us from sharing the Gospel with people? What is it that keeps us from inviting every single person we know, not just to come to a church thing, but into our lives? Please sit in this and ask yourself these questions. What keeps us from leaning in to difficult people? What keeps us? What moves us to choose a couch over a cross? What is it that makes us think the point of our days is to do what we need to do so that we can just rest and have me time at the end of the day? What has tricked us? What part of the eternal state of all people apart from Christ do we not understand? What part of the vanity of the American dream are we not understanding? How many of us would be honest and admit the reason we're at college is to find a career that makes us money? Could it be that your love of money is also robbing what you should be doing with your life? Here's why this is so hard. Do you realize that revival can actually happen in our city? Do you believe that? Every single person in this room that claims Christ truly can be used by Him to bring people into the kingdom. That can actually happen. Let the Lord flip over the tables in your hearts that are keeping you from being in prayer and on mission. Do whatever it takes. Let the line in the sand be drawn tonight. Please hear my heart. This is not me joining Jesus and being angry at you. This is me letting you know that tables need flipped in my own heart. It's a terrifying thing to come up in front of people and exhort us to do things that I fail to do. But what about you? Let's say Jesus walked into your personal life. Would he see you? What would he see in your prayer life? What would he say your life is about? Are you a robber? What do you spend your time and money on? What do you claim to say about our king? And what do you functionally worship with your life? If you claim Christ, you need to understand how easy it is for us to boil our faith down into something that just serves our own purposes of comfort, convenience, and inner peace. If anything about our faith leads you to exalt self over God, you're a hypocrite. What would Jesus say about this ministry? I pray, somehow by His Word and by His grace, He would give us a zeal and a jealousy that Jesus had for His Father's house. It's been a scary prayer. I've been begging Him to draw a line in the sand in us. And if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, I'm asking you to step up. No more playing games. No more letting sermons register for a moment and then not produce any life change. 
harsh reality is some of you wouldn't be willing to delete apps off your phone to make more time for prayer. And that isn't Christian cliche, throwback youth group legalism. Our prayerlessness shows that something is deeply wrong. Do you actually see how spending more time on the internet than in the word and prayer, how it should be horrifying to us? I want the impulses that you feel when you are finally guarding time in the word and in prayer to jump to your phone. I want it to terrify you. We have normalized a pattern of life that Jesus flipped tables over. Begging you to stop and consider this. Collective staff, serve team, new serve team people. There's commitments we've made to put a priority on prayer that we have not met. What changes do we need to make in our life today, tonight? What do we need to do to reorient our lives in this ministry on the priority of prayer and mission? Do you realize our lack of prayer stunts our effectiveness and mission? Do you realize this? You can't do ministry without God's help. And our lack of mission lulls us to sleep to where we think we don't need God's help to live out the implications of the Gospel. So what's it going to be with prayer? Listen, I'm not done letting this sink in, but there's more of Mark 11. Here's a few things. Number one, 6.45 p.m., is when we do prayer time for collective. And I want to challenge you, if you're a believer, that you just consider that when collective starts. Now, I understand if you've got people you're bringing or class up to there, don't hear me say that. But what I'm saying is we have no shot at pushing back darkness on our campus without God's help. That's one thing. 645. Also, if you're a non-believer, you can come then too, but it might not make as much sense to you. Also, 9.30 a.m. on Mondays, this room will be open for prayer. And that's a terrifying thing, because can I be honest? I've had on my calendar for potentially six months, maybe a whole year, guarded an hour for prayer in my schedule. I think that I've done it once. So I'm asking you to hold me accountable. 9.30, starting my week, this is open for prayer. Also 3.30 on Fridays at the end of our week. More than welcome to come join us. And we will figure out how to empower you to have prayer meetings in your lives. And if all of this sounds daunting, as it does to me, please let me know afterwards and let's pray about it. <laughs> Let's pray and ask God to help us pray, because we need help.
And what's it going to be on mission? All of you who claim Christ should be at the missions table after this, considering how to use your life for God's glory among the nations. All of you should be praying for people to come to know Jesus in and through this mission. And so what's it going to be with the church? For those of you who have boiled your faith down into a campus ministry experience, what's it going to be? Do you know that heaven really can break loose in our lives? We can know Jesus deeply and tell everyone we know about his gospel. Verse 18, we got to get going. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Remember that fig tree? And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Look at the lesson of this. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So it's an interesting connection here. We're reminded that the fig tree is withered away, a picture of what can happen to our souls when we are hypocritical with our faith, and then Jesus teaches a lesson on prayer that can fundamentally change everything for us if we'll just believe it and pray. You want to have fruit and see God's kingdom come in and through us, have faith in God. And then Jesus uses a mountain idea to stretch us into the depths of his power. Nothing is impossible for God. And this is the God that we pray to. The audacity of this promise is insane. And I'll be honest, I can feel maybe some tension in the room. And I'm going to beg you, don't let your cynicism of genie in a bottle type praying keep you from letting this promise take you straight into the power of prayer. Mature Christians know that verse 24 is not meant to make us think that prayer is our divine wish list. But when Jesus taught us to pray, our desires are meant to be in line with His coming kingdom and His will being done. Can you imagine if it became in Huntington or at Marshall as it is in heaven? Anything is possible and no mountain is too big. You have to ask, what or who are you praying for? And a final story here to show off Jesus' authority. Uh, Van, you can make your way back up. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the point. Jesus really is in charge, and we all have to come to terms with this. If this is true, if Mark 11 is true, then we have a decision to make about our lives. What should be our response to our fruitless, cursed life First is to marvel at the fact that Jesus died for us. He starts out Holy Week cursing a tree and ends Holy Week becoming the curse on a tree for us. He starts 
Holy Week out by showing what He has come to disrupt and then dies for all the ways that we have messed this up. And this is where we get forgiveness for our lack of fruit and the power to bear kingdom fruit with our lives. Everything gets its shape and its power from the Gospel. And once we grasp this, we pray, we live on mission, and instead of letting people into the temple, we as the temple, we go to everyone that we know and tell them about our God. Let's pray. Father, do a work here, please. Do a work in my life, in our lives. Convict us of our prayerlessness and our lack of fruit. Thank you for grace and mercy that covers us where we fall in this. But Lord, let that grace move us to be people of prayer and mission. God, let no one pass through this place if they're stuck in hypocrisy with you. Make us a ministry of prayer. Do whatever it takes in our lives to show us our neediness and your power. And we trust you with this, God. We need help. Only power, only guidance, only conviction can come from you. So please meet us in this moment as we sing. Help us to be the temple that you've called us to. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.